0: going home. Isn't that wonderful? There's no better place to be than to be gathered together with brethren of like precious faith and be singing songs about our eternal living hope. And I thank you so much for engaging in this as you have already this evening. I thank you so much for the encouragement that you've been to me all weekend and I certainly hope that I've been an encouragement to you as well. uh, I'll have more comments to make if you will let me uh, before we dismiss this evening. Uh, before I depart from you, but uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed studying God's Word with you, and I hope it's been beneficial. I know it has been for me. Let me invite you to open your Bibles with me to John chapter 14, please. The 14th chapter of John's Gospel. We have discussed together, as Austin mentioned, as we opened this evening, we've been dealing with the cultures in society that Satan uses as tools to try to uproot our faith. And he has a very effective tool in using those things. But we've talked about ways of how to be warned and how to be on guard and how to overcome those things by going back to the Word of God, which is all sufficient. We have everything that we need therein to overcome societal culture and its hindrances and to keep our eyes focused on things above and keep motivated in this life seeing God's grace and how active it is in our lives and how it causes us to keep renewing our minds in regard to who we are, where we're going, and who we need to be along the way. It is a dark world, though, isn't it? And it seems as we look at it, it gets darker and darker. But the good thing about that is, and you say, well, Jason, you say there's a good thing about that? That's right. The darker the world gets, the brighter that Jesus shines therein. So we can, we can even find a silver lining even in living in a dark world. But it's still difficult, isn't it? It's still hard. It's difficult to live in a hell-bound society because generally as we look at the world around us, we have to realize and see that the majority of people who are living among us are people who are hell-bound, unfortunately because they're living contrary to the word and the will of God. That's not what we want, want, that's not what we desire, that's not what God wants and what God desires. We're out there trying to be lights in the world, trying to be an example and influence and to find opportunity to teach those the gospel, that they may have access to God's grace and find that living hope. But it's hard. It's difficult. And if we're going to be the people that we need to be, while we're living in this hell-bound society, brethren, we must keep heaven in view. Heaven's our hope. I don't know if we think about that like we should. You see, we have a purpose as God's people here on this earth, and that is to live in a way to honor and glorify our God and our Lord and Savior and to go to heaven when this life is over. And we must put all of our energy and all of our effort into accomplishing that purpose. If we don't, we've missed it. If we miss heaven, we miss everything that's good. Heaven is so vital and so important to the life of the Christian that it should always keep us with a viewpoint on those things above, keeping our focus on those things that are real and eternal, not on these things that are temporary. It's the things that are unseen that are the most important, not the things that are seen. And when we live with that viewpoint and with that attitude, we will certainly overcome this world as we should because heaven will always be in our view. What I'm trying to get across to you tonight is what we just sang in that song. Thank you for leading that. Because if we are going to keep this viewpoint in a hell-bound society, brethren, we must remember how beautiful heaven must be. You know, there's not a whole lot of scripture in the Bible that gives us a description of heaven. There's enough. There's enough written therein that the picture can be painted for me of how beautiful heaven must be. And tonight, that's what I want to do. I want to open my Bible, and I want you to open yours, and we're going to let the Scriptures paint us a picture of how beautiful heaven must be. First of all, notice with me how beautiful heaven must be because it's a place prepared by the Lord. We find that in John chapter 14 as Jesus says, speaking to his disciples, he's preparing them for his departure from the earth. Jesus is leaving. But he's trying to prepare these men for the work they're going to need to be doing once he's gone. Guys, I'm leaving you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans, he'll go on to tell them. I'm going to send you a helper. The Holy Spirit's going to guide you into all truth. You're going to have everything you need, but I'm not going to be here. But there's some hope that comes along with Jesus' departure, and that is that he's coming back again, right? John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Jesus says to them, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus tells them that, You know what, I'm leaving, but I'm not leaving for good. I'm coming back again and I'm going to take you home to where I'm going. But Jesus says, I have to leave now because I have to go and prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that Jesus is up there in glory with a carpenter belt on and building us a mansion. And we miss the point, don't we? Because the preparation that Jesus is talking about there is not building me a mansion. What he's saying when he says, in my Father's house are many mansions, he's saying there's plenty of room for us there. Heaven is adequate and sufficient for everyone to be able to go, and everyone has the opportunity. Don't miss it. But what's Jesus doing to make preparation for us right now if he's not wearing a tube up and swinging a hammer? Which he's not. What's he doing? Well, I think if we look to the Hebrew letter. Chapter 7, verse 25, really makes the point for us clear, doesn't it? When the writer to the Hebrews says this, Speaking of Jesus, therefore he, being our high priest in the context, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's what Jesus is doing right now. The preparatory work that's going on is Jesus being at the right hand of the Father, making possible our intercession before God. We are sinful creatures, aren't we? We find forgiveness of our sins through our obedience to the gospel. But it's Jesus sitting at God's right hand as our mediator that's allowing us to have continual access to his grace when we fall short. And we recognize that and go to the Father and ask for forgiveness. Jesus is there that says, let's forgive them. There's the preparation that's going on. Jesus left this earth. The redeeming work was finished, but now he's in heaven and he's taking up the mediating work. And he's preparing for us a place through that intercessory work that he's doing at the right hand of God. What a wonderful thing. If not for that, we would be totally lost. Heaven is a place that's being prepared by the Lord, but it's a prepared place for prepared people. Have you ever heard that statement? I've heard that statement so many times, and it is so true, because when we read through the Scriptures, that's exactly what we're told, isn't it? One of those parables that Jesus uses as a preparation parable is Matthew chapter 25. And turn over there with me, and let's just remind ourselves of the parable of the wise and the foolish virgin. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. Notice what Jesus has to say here. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Surely I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore. For you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Jesus paints a picture there for us of the need to prepare for the coming of the Lord. He's coming again. We don't know when. We have no idea what time. But he's coming. And all throughout this section of parables, Jesus has made the point that the day and the hour you do not know. And if you do not know the day and the hour, then the need for preparation is at hand. It's always at hand because the coming of the Lord is always at hand. It's always near. It's nearer today than it was yesterday. And every day that we live here on this earth, the coming of the Lord is always more at hand than it was before. Then what do we need? We need to be prepared. We need to be ready. We don't need to think that we can just sit around and get everything gathered up together. When Jesus comes again, we can say, well, there he comes. Hold on a minute, Lord. Let me get things in order. These virgins teach us that, right? Some had come prepared. They were ready for the bridegroom. Some weren't. And the picture is painted of the kingdom here, that members of the kingdom of God, while we're here, need to be ready for the coming of the Lord again. He's coming. We know that. We want to be ready to meet him when he gets here. Heaven's a prepared place for a prepared people who are ready to go home to that place that's being prepared for us by our Lord. It's a place that's prepared, brethren, beyond what our minds can fathom. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. As I'm turning over here, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I'm sorry, I'm going to read verse 9. But before I read this, I want to let you know that I understand clearly that what the apostle is writing about here is talking about gospel age. I realize realize the statement that he's making is talking about, you know, what's going to happen in the gospel age. That those who are enjoying access to God's grace as his disciples living faithfully on this earth, oh, so many good things happen, don't they? If you're here tonight and you're a faithful Christian, you recognize how good it is to be a child of God. And before we became children of God, we could not fathom how wonderful it is. We can go through hard times in our lives right now and go through those hard times knowing that God is with us and he's strengthening us and he helps us to overcome those hard times and those hard times aren't as bad as they would be if I wasn't a child of God. And I've experienced that and I know that you've experienced that. We can fathom the riches of being a member of the body of Christ. I realize that's what Paul's talking about here. Now as we read, read with me. First Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, he's speaking of the wisdom that was revealed to Paul and the other apostles, how they were given the mind of Christ. And they communicated that message. Verse 9, But it is written, Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Direct quotations from Isaiah the prophet. And the point he's making is is that in the gospel kingdom, in the kingdom of the Lord, Isaiah is prophesying of the wonderful things that were going to be possible in the Messiah's age. But my point is, brethren, if things are so good now as we're living here in the temporary kingdom, and the things that aren't going to last, and how wonderful it could be for a child of God now, how much better will it be over yonder in eternity? Just think about what God has prepared for us in the unknown that we haven't seen. If he's provided for us everything that we need right now in this realm. You know, everything that we know about beauty is from what we see with our eyes. That's all we know. I mentioned to some some brethren that I enjoy hiking. I've got some friends that we go into the mountains and we backpack and we'll spend two or three days. We'll get out there where there's no cell phone service, which is a wonderful thing nowadays. And I have seen some of the most beautiful sunrises in all of my life. An early morning off in the mountains in the middle of nowhere and you see the sun rise over a mountain and you see the beauty of that radiant glory coming up from the middle of nowhere it seems and you just look and you think, wow! Our God is so awesome. You know, and I've been to the beach and I've seen some beautiful sunsets. While being on the beach in the evening, and then just look at the sky and and how beautiful that is, and you've seen that too. But you know something about beautiful that my mind goes back to is when I was a kid. There's this old blue swimming hole that was down in front of my uncle's house in Sulphur Creek. And the trees there all around it, and this beautiful blue water that we used to swim in. And I just think about that setting, and I go back in my mind as a kid, and I think, that was so beautiful. And everything that I, that I know of beauty in my mind are things that I have seen here on earth. And for you as well. With that thought in mind, listen to Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool where is the house that you will build me and where is the place of my rest? God making his point here about something else in the context, but just from the first line of that, brethren, if we're living on the footstool, then what must the throne room be like? With that being said, can we not say then how beautiful heaven must be? Why? Because it's a place that's prepared by the Lord. Secondly, how beautiful heaven must be because it's a place of eternal comfort. Eternal comfort. Turn with me to First Thessalonians chapter 4, please. We look for comfort here in this life. We need it. There are so many t- times in this life that we become sorrowful, we become sad, we have disappointments that we never saw coming, Things don't materialize that we anticipate. We lose loved ones. Loved ones become sick, and they may stay sick for a long time. And we look for comfort in this life in regard to those things, and you know what? We, we really sometimes feel like we wish we had something more, don't we? Because the pain doesn't always go away. The disappointments may always be there. We all may always be reminded of that which we, we could not change. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this first letter to the Thessalonians, there was obviously someone, or several, among the church at Thessalonica that were teaching things that were not true in regard to the second coming of Jesus. Both letters to the church at Thessalonica have to do a major theme that runs through them is the second coming of the Lord. And Paul is trying to correct a lot of that false teaching. And there were a lot of brethren, obviously, that were in discomfort and sorrow because of the things they had heard you pick up in verse 13 of chapter 14 and you can see that thought when paul writes here but i do not want you to be ignorant brethren concerning those who have fallen asleep lest you sorrow as others who have no hope for if we believe that jesus died and rose again even so god will bring with him those who sleep in jesus for this we say to you by the word of the lord The words of Scripture, the words of the revelation of the Holy Spirit, comfort one another with these words. You're going to be sorrowful here on this earth, brethren. There are going to be things that bring you sorrow, but Paul didn't want them to sorrow in ignorance as others who had no hope. Yes, there are some that had passed away among the church at Thessalonica. Some people who were saying that they missed the second coming of Jesus. Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not true. As a matter of fact, when the Lord comes again, the dead in Christ are going to rise first. Then we who remain will be caught up together with him to meet the Lord in the air. And that was a promise that has yet to be realized. But they could find comfort in the promise that hadn't even been realized yet. Because there was a hope there. They didn't have to worry, suffer, be saddened without hope. They had hope they had hope of the fact that their loved ones who had passed away, they were going to see them again in glory. At the resurrection of life, they were going to be there along with those who had already left this life. You don't have to sorrow without a hope. There's a hope Jesus is coming again and you can be comforted in the promise. But if we can find comfort in the promise, brethren, just think about the fulfillment of that promise when the reality is that the Lord's here. How much comfort will that be? when Jesus is here and he's taking us home. When we rise to meet the Lord in the air, that comfort is going to be out of this world, isn't it? Because that's a promise that will always, always be true because when God makes a promise, he always keeps it. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Because when Jesus takes us home again, or when Jesus takes us home and he goes home again, He's going to take us to a place of no more sorrow, no more sadness, no more tears, and no more dying. Because that's the problem we have here, isn't it? There's sickness. There's cancer. There's things in this life that are out of our control that we cannot change. Lives are going to be lost. Sadness is going to come. There are going to be things that happen that disappoint us so much that we never forget about them. They're always there in our minds and the memory of that sometimes can push us into depression, if not care. But the promise of the second coming of Jesus and the comfort that can be found therein is one that tells us you're going home to a place where none of that is ever going to be again. It won't be there. Revelation chapter 21 in verse 4. Let me, let me work you through the end of the Revelation letter. Chapter 20, you have a judgment scene. John has the vision of all the dead standing there before the great white throne of judgment. Some whose names are written in the book of life, they get to enter in to so that kingdom that's been prepared before the foundation of the world. Those whose names are not written therein in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. But as the scene moves on to after the judgment you have this picture here of those whose names were found written in that book and here's that picture of heaven written for us and John writes and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes there will be no more death nor sorrow nor crying there shall be no more pain because the former things have passed away in heaven brethren we're not going to be crying anymore in heaven brethren we're not going to have pain anymore because there's going to be no more sickness. There's going to be no more dying. There's going to be none of those things anymore because the curse is going to be gone. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Just think about that. That's the comfort that we can have in knowing that all those things are going to be taken away, but that's to come, isn't it? There's only mourning here. It's just part of life, isn't it? And just because we're disciples of Jesus doesn't mean that we're exempt from mourning in this life. Mourning here really means comfort over there. Remember the passage in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4. One of the Beatitudes where Jesus says, Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I realize that that statement is made in regard to the gospel age as well. What Jesus is saying is, Blessed are those who mourn. And someone may read that and think, well, why in the world would I be blessed if I I'm, if mourn? I'm Doesn't mourning have to do with sadness and sorrow? The point Jesus is making is, is that those who mourn in this life, mourn what? Those who mourn the sins that separate them from God are those who will correct those sins and get their lives right with Him. And then they'll be blessed. And not only will I mourn the sin in my life when it's present, I want to get that right, but then I'll turn to others and I'll mourn the sin in their life and I'll do my best to try to make that right with them so they can get right with God and we all can have that hope. Blessed are those who mourn. They can have comfort in God's promises in this life, but oh, what comfort we'll have when the Lord comes again. If we can be comforted here in the temporary, how much more will we be comforted when the Lord comes again? Because we're going to a place not just of temporary comfort. i find a little comfort here and then that comfort may pass away. But in heaven, it's going to be a place where the comfort never ends because God's there and God says, you'll find true comfort here. And God's eternal and when we're in heaven with him, we will be too. And brethren, if that's the case, can we not say again how beautiful heaven must be? Thirdly, how beautiful heaven must be because it's a place of eternal rest. A place of eternal rest. Only in the Lord are we promised rest. That passage in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 13, you remember the passage. I'll put it on the screen for us so we can read it together. But then in the 14th chapter, John writes, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works follow them. Do you see that where it says rest right there? That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? But here's the problem. We have people who have an understanding of what that rest is that's not an accurate understanding. I have people tell me that, oh, when I go to heaven, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to float around on a cloud all day, and I'm going to be fed grapes by an angel. And that's their depiction of heaven. But I haven't read any scripture that tells me that that's going to happen. What I have read in the scriptures is that the Bible tells me that when I do go over on the other side, that I'll be serving my Lord, and whatever I do in service to my Lord will be a wonderful thing. I love to serve him here and I'll sure love to serve him over yonder, won't you? And we'll have our place around the throne worshiping our God and saying, Worthy is the Lamb. And we'll have rest. Rest from our labors. But what we do not need is rest from serving God. That's not what we need rest from. That's not we need more of that. If there's anything we need more of, it's worship and service to God because that's what makes us the best we could ever be. So if the rest isn't from worship and service to God, what kind of rest are we talking about here? Brethren, it has to be from this arduous and onerous, ongoing battle with sin that we fight day in and day out. It's that battle that we fight that sometimes makes us feel like we're pressed up against the wall, and it's almost trying to strangle us and snuff us out. And we keep fighting it and we keep warring over it because we know we have a hope that the Lord's coming again. But sometimes we think it's just going to take us, don't we? Because sin is real, Satan is real, and he's out there in the world and he's trying to rob us of our hope. And one day when I get to eternal glory, I know that I'm going to find rest. That's wonderful. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, please. You should be close. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we pick up that theme again of the second coming of the Lord. And here in chapter 1, he's writing to these faithful Christians and he's saying, look, I know you're being troubled. It's obvious that these brethren were being persecuted and tried. And notice what he says to them. We'll pick up mid-thought in verse 6, but we can make our point. You notice at the end of verse 5, he talks about that you be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Now look at verse 6. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you you who are troubled rest with us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, When he comes in that day to be glorified with his saints among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. What is Jesus going to bring to the faithful when he comes again? He says rest. He's going to bring rest to you who are troubled, he says. That had to be dealing with the persecution that they were suffering at the time. But brethren, let me ask you, what was behind the persecution? Who is the source and the originator of the persecution? Was it not Satan? Is not Satan behind every persecution and every trial? And is he not behind everything that causes us to stumble and fall? God may allow things to happen, but Satan is the source. And if Satan is the source, then sin is behind it, and sin causes us all the trouble, doesn't it? But one thing that I can know is that when I get to heaven, Satan will not be there. There's one person I know that will be in in eternal glory, and that's the devil. And if the devil's not there, then there'll be no more trouble from him. I'll be able to lay down my armor. I can finally rest. Rest. Rest from this battle of sin that we keep fighting day in and day out because we know what's most important. We know going to heaven's everything to us. And we know we can't let sin and Satan rob us of our hope. And one day we'll be in glory, and we'll be rejoicing over that fact. But Jesus is the only source of that rest. You're not going to find it at the corner store. You're not going to find it on the ball field, and you're not going to find it, you know, climbing the corporate ladder. You're going to find it in the Scriptures. You're going to find it in your obedience to the truth. You're going to find it in your love for him and you're saturating your lives in God and everything that has to do with his will and his kingdom. That's what Jesus taught the whole time he was on the earth. Remember this passage? Matthew 11, 28 through 29, when Jesus says in that great invitation, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find what? Rest for your soul. What does Jesus promise? He promises rest. Rest, but he's the only source of that rest. What he's saying there is you come to me all you who are labor and you fight this arduous battle of sin day in and day out. I can give you rest from that. I'm the only one who can do that. You take my yoke. The yoke of the rabbi was his teaching. You take the teaching of Jesus upon you. What you can have in this life is forgiveness of your sin. That's the first step Have forgiveness of our sins and then one day we fight the good fight, we battle on and one day in eternal glory we can lay down the armor because Jesus has given us rest. Sweet, sweet rest. Rest from this ongoing battle with sin that we fought all the days of our life but when we get to heaven my brethren that will no longer be because heaven is a place of eternal rest. And if that's the case, can we say one more time? How beautiful heaven must be. Finally, notice with me that heaven must be beautiful. How beautiful heaven must be because it's a place of God's nearest presence. I love to talk about that. It's a place of God's nearest presence. Don't get me wrong. I I realize that God is near to us now. I understand that. You go to Acts chapter 17. Turn over there with me. Acts chapter 17. And you read Paul speaking to those in Athens that he had come into contact with. You know, he had been walking around the city noticing all the idols that they had there in the city. Saw the one that said to the unknown God. And that, that sparked his attention, didn't he? And he was reasoning with people. And they invited him up to the Areopagus, And he was able to talk to all those philosophers. And in his sermon to them, notice what he says just in chapter 17. We'll just pick up there at verse 22. Let's just read a little bit here. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they may go for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Oh, he just really paints the picture, doesn't he? He's like, you people are very religious, but you don't understand who you should be worshiping. There's a God who created all things. The great God of heaven gives you life, breath, and all things. He's the reason you exist, and from one blood he created all men. And it's that God you need to be seeking. You need to be groping for him. Scratch call for him with everything you've got. But you know what? He wants to be found. And furthermore, Paul says he's not far from us. He's right here. He wants you to find him. I understand, you see. I know right now God's not far from us. James chapter 4 and verse 8. What did James write? Draw near to God and what will he do? He'll draw near to you. That can happen here. And it must happen here. It has to begin here. I have to realize that I can be near God. God wants to be near to me. let that motivate me to seek Him, go for Him, find Him here. And that's a wonderful thing to know that I enjoy fellowship with the God who created me and gave me life and breath and all things here. But we're talking about what's going on' be going on in heaven, brethren, we're talking about a nearness that's beyond measure. It's amplified to a measure that our minds can't fathom. Even the Apostle John <laughs> said that. Here's one of, my, one of my favorite passages. I read this and I just think, wow. That's what John's saying, wow. When John writes, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Can we just stop right there and just take that in? We who are totally unworthy, we've done nothing to deserve the grace of God and the love of God. We've done nothing to deserve the the opportunity to have our sins forgiven and to have that hope of being with him in heaven. And oh, what manner of love God has bestowed upon us that we should even be called his children, that I can call upon him as my father and he hear me and recognize me. Blessed be the God of heaven. Why? Can't you see that that's what John feels when he's saying that? And there's one who walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, saw his miracles, heard his teachings for three and a half years. He was the one of those disciples that he said that Jesus loved the most. And he's still blown away by it. What about you and me? Am I, am I, am I try, I'm just trying to get you to see how wonderful what we have in Christ is that John would even say what he said, And he says, look, don't worry. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. Let me stop right there again. What he's telling us is, is have confidence. Be confident in the fact that if you are a faithful Christian and you are striving to do your best to serve the Lord according to his will, you can know you are his child. One of the problems that I've seen over the years among brethren is, is that for too long we have said, well, I I just don't know if I'm going to go to heaven until I stand before the judgment seat. That's not what John just said. John just said that you can know now. And you need to know now. Because if you don't know now, you don't have any hope. And why are you doing it anyway? but to know and to have confidence because I can't have confidence if I'm opening this Bible and I'm reading it and, and I'm just trying to apply it and do what I read therein. He tells me, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Those who keep his commandments go to heaven by the grace of God and the blood of Jesus Christ. And we can know. Verse 28 said, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. That is one of the most beautiful statements that have ever been read. But I am like John. I can't describe it adequately. John says, oh, there's going to be something wonderful when Jesus comes. When he comes again, you know what? I don't know what it's going to be like, but it's going to be wonderful. Why? Because we're going to see Jesus as he is in eternal glory, and we're going to be just like him, glorified like him. We're going to be with him there forever and forever. Wow. When I read 1 John 3, 1 and 2, I just say, wow. And it's no wonder John says in verse 3, I just couldn't fit it on there. <laughs> And those who have this hope in Him purify themselves just as He is pure. Why? Because we know what's going to happen. We're going to be in the nearest presence of our God and our Lord, and we're going to be like Him. And that's heaven. And that's the greatest part about heaven. The greatest part about heaven. You know, I find it troubling when I counsel those who want to get married and I do a lot of that we we have a lot of young people back home and young couples who have been marrying uh, and I just I find myself here lately sitting down with couples a lot and counseling them because I won't perform your wedding as I said earlier today unless I've met with you several times we're going to talk about some things and I find it very troubling when I sit down with a married couple and The bride-to-be just can't talk about anything but the the house she's going to have and all the cars she's going to drive and and all of the amenities that are going to be there in the big house that she's going to have, but she never once says anything about her husband-to-be. I think that's the problem. In the same way, when I hear Christians talking about, oh, I can't wait to get to heaven, walk the street of gold and see the gates of pearl and I'm going to let the angel feed me grapes from the cloud that's going to be mine, but they never ever say anything about Jesus, I see a problem there. I don't want to go to heaven for the amenities, brethren. I want to go to heaven because that's where God is. That's the most wonderful thing about heaven. Can I say this? We've read those passages in chapter 21 be turning over to chapter 22 we'll we'll close there but let me say this you know like like this weekend there are times that that i have to be away from my wife and my family and sometimes that just has to be that way we can't always be together in situations like this but you know i I didn't get married to be away from my wife i actually enjoy being with her (laughs) you know I, i do I enjoyed that. That's why I got married. I like to be with her. And when I'm away from her, I miss her. I long to be with her. That's why we that's why we together in marriage is because we love one another and we love to spend time together. And then when I'm away from her, you know what I'm not missing? I'm not missing my chair that's sitting in the living room. And I'm not missing, missing my bed that I sleep in per se and my special pillow that I sleep on. And I'm not missing that. You know what I'm missing? I'm missing the relationship of my wife and my children at home. Because that's the most important thing in the physical existence. Do you see my point? The best thing about heaven, brethren, is not what we're going to have when we get there as far as access to a street of gold and a gate of pearl. Can, can I explain that just a minute? When you start reading things like that in in the letters, many times John is using things like that to try to speak of something that words just can't describe. He speaks of hell as a lake of brimstone and fire. But let me tell you something. The figure is much worse than the symbol. Hell is going to be much worse than any lake of brimstone and fire. That's just the worst thing can be thought of. You know why? Because God's not going to be there. If you think of a street of gold and gates of pearl, those are some of the most beautiful things that we can think of. But let me tell you this, in the same way, heaven's going to be far greater than any street of gold or gates of pearl ever could be. Do you know why? Because that's where God's going to be in heaven. And just like in the family realm, brethren, heaven itself is about relationships. Heaven itself is about being in the nearest presence of God. And if that's going to be the case for us as his children, can we say one last time, how beautiful heaven must be. How beautiful. That we, the weak, undeserving people that we are, in all of our times of doubting, in our times where we make mistakes, that God would give us the opportunity to spend eternity with him. But he's told us that because we had to have a hope. And that's what God wanted from the very outset was to have those people back with him once again. Where's the tree of life found? What once was in the Garden of Eden is now in heaven. Revelation chapter 22 In verse 4, as John is painting that picture for us again, it says of those who are going to be there in that place, that place of eternal glory, heaven, it says, they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads, and there shall be no night there. They need no lamp, no light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and forever. How beautiful heaven must be because we'll be in the nearest presence of God. Let's allow this to motivate us in a dark, dark world because there's not a brighter light that can shine in our lives than that. There's nothing more wonderful that we can have in our view than knowing that we're going to be there in a place prepared by the Lord, a place of eternal comfort, a place of eternal rest, where sin or Satan will be no more, a place in the nearest presence of God. Brethren, isn't that where you want to go? Because that's where I want to be. And if you miss heaven, you miss everything that's good in this life, because this life is all about going to heaven, isn't it? Don't miss it. Don't you let anything cause you to miss heaven. And tonight I stand before you one last time saying if you're here tonight and you are not a child of God, then why not become one now? If you've heard the gospel and you believe it, why not repent of your sins right now? Turn from your sinful ways and turn to God. Be baptized in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Allow his blood to wash you clean. Rise to walk in unity of life. A new creature who is now not hell-bound but heaven-bound and we're going to take people with us to the best of our ability. We're going to rise up. We're going to overcome this world by our faith because we know one day we're going to be changed. How beautiful. If you're here tonight and you've wandered and you've wavered, you're not the Christian that you know you should be. You can change that. There are people here that love you and want to help you. Do you need prayer? Do you need to study with one of these men? Do whatever you need to do to make sure heaven's your home. How beautiful it must be. I can't wait to be there. And I want you to be with me. If you need to respond to the gospel call tonight, please come while we stand and we sing this song.